0: Our scripture reading for today is from Acts 9, 1 through 2, and verse 22, found on page 917 in your pew Bibles. Um, And this is also an opportunity if you do not have a Bible today, um, please take one home as a gift from us. So, page 917, Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any way, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then just a few weeks later in verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Marcus, for reading God's word for us. My name is Paul Brandis, and I will add my welcome to Marcus's. Uh, I serve here as the associate pastor, and I'm thrilled that each and every one of you uh, decided to be here today to begin your week uh, with us. Uh, as we open God's word to Acts 9, um, please bow your heads with me and ask that God would help us understand what He might have for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you that it is recorded for us, that we have it, that uh, we have access to it, Lord, that we can open it and read it and learn uh, from you, learn about you. And I pray, Father, as we do that this morning, as we take a closer look at Acts 9 and this story of unbelievable change, I pray, Father, that you would speak through me, that I would diminish as you would increase. And I pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, can you think of a more radical change than what Marcus just read from us, for us, verses 1 and 2, and then just a few days, a few weeks later, verse 22. I think it's one of the most radical and unbelievable changes that we know of, scripture or otherwise. You see, early on in the life of the church, there were numerous attempts to stamp it out, to kill it, end it, destroy it. And at the very center of this work was a man named Saul. We met him briefly in our passage a couple weeks ago. The beginning of Acts 8 records that Saul stood by in approval as Stephen became the first Christian martyr, the first person killed for their faith in Jesus. So this character, Saul, he explodes into our story as a murderer, or at the very least as an approver of murder. And then Acts 9 verses 1 and 2 show that Saul is up to more of the same, The killing of Stephen caused an exodus of Christians from Jerusalem. Once that happened, people started to leave. The way of Jesus is now spreading, and it's becoming harder and harder to contain. But this will not stop Paul from trying to contain it. When we find him in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, he's on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest so that he can arrest any Christian that he finds. And so at the beginning of this story, we're all set up to experience what we think we've already seen happen over and over and over again in the book of Acts. The disciples of Jesus are arrested, imprisoned, harassed, beaten, and even killed. This is what we think is going to happen. But then, something else happens. Something changes. And instead of that ending, what we were expecting, what we get instead is verse 22, which reads again, But Saul increased all the more in strength, And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And we read this, and I know I go, how in the world, how in just 20 verses did we get from Saul working, from Saul dedicating his life to destroy Jesus, to him trying to work to prove decisively that Jesus is God's Savior? A few weeks ago in this teaching series that we've been in, The Beauty of Weakness in the Book of Acts, we talked about the Apostle Peter's turnaround. And the Apostle Peter's change, his turnaround was incredible in its own right. But this turnaround from Saul, this change, it's somehow even more unbelievable. And so the question in in my mind, and maybe it's the question in your mind too, is how how in the world did this unbelievable change happen? And then, if we can get an answer to that question, then I'm immediately going to want to know, can this change happen for me? Can it happen for you? Can change like what we read about in Acts 9, can it happen for us? Because this is not often my experience with change, what we read about in Acts 9. This doesn't too often happen in my own life. Far more often, my experience with change is the, the proverbial mantra, two st- or one step forward, two steps back. I won't even say I take two steps forward and then just one back. No, I, I'd like to take one forward and then two back, and then what I do is once I take two back, then I sit down on the ground and I cry because I can't do it. <laughs> Anyone else? A change in my life is a lot like this race, a running race, between myself and my son Bevin. Let's take a look. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> <can't, I> <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who hasn't been there, right? We start out with, we got a full head of steam. We've got all this naive optimism. I'm going to be daddy. I'm going to be daddy. And by the way, I am not fast. I am like, I'm really slow, right? But I'm going to be daddy. I'm going to be daddy. And then when the inevitability of failure sets in, what do we do? We collapse on the ground too fast. Dad, I fell down. I mean, again, I know that I've been there myself. And that's why, this is what happens in my life with change, so that's why I'm wondering, can change like what we see in Acts 9 happen for us? We're going to enter into this story and see. And as we do, I just, one small point of clarification. Saul, who we've already been introduced to this morning, is the same person as the Apostle Paul. Same guy, Saul and Paul, same guy. Paul is a main character for the second half of the book of Acts, and he also wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And it's not really true that God renamed Saul into Paul. Uh, That has happened in the Bible. Uh, God renamed Abram, Abraham. God renamed Jacob, Israel. But that's not what's going on here. Paul, Saul Paul, already possessed both of those names. Saul was his Jewish name, and Paul was his Greek name. And as we'll discover throughout the book of Acts, his work was primarily with people who were not Jewish, which is why he refers to himself and why he is referred to as Paul far more often than Saul. Now, for the sake of clarity this morning, I'm going to do my best. I don't think I did it Uh, perfectly at 9 a.m., but I'm going to do my best to refer to him as as Paul, not Saul, except when I'm reading the passage, uh, because for most of the rest of Acts, we'll be calling him Paul. So hopefully that won't be confusing, and instead you'll just have to wonder, is he talking about the apostle or himself? So it'd be better if Bill was preaching, right? And then it's like, okay, well, at least there's not Saul, Paul, and Paul. We thought about calling the apostle Paul Hank Just, you know, something totally different, but okay, stick with me. So who is, who is this guy? Who is the Apostle Paul? Well, we get a bit of information on him from the book of Acts itself, primarily later on in the story, but in his New Testament writings, he actually tells us quite a bit of himself pre-Acts 9. So from his own words, we actually get to see who he was before this unbelievable change in Acts 9. And I think the best snapshot of Paul's pre-Acts 9 life comes from the book of Philippians chapter 3. In those verses, 5 and 6, read this way, Paul's own words about himself pre-Acts 9. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, well, I obeyed the law without fault. Basically, Paul, in describing himself pre-Acts 9, argues that he was the best at his religion. And I don't think he was being arrogant. I think he was being truthful. Paul's religious resume was better than yours. It was better than mine. His religious resume was better than everyone's, basically. And his religious resume, his religious pedigree, it led to this intense religious zeal. Don't miss this. In in his persecution of the early church, Paul was doing what he thought was right in God's sight. I don't think he lost sleep at night over his actions. In fact, just the opposite. I don't think he was just a jerk of a guy or going rogue on a personal vendetta. No, I think he was acting with the full backing of the Jewish religion and and with what he thought was God's approval. Paul was zealous, he was intense in what he was doing because he thought he was carrying out God's mission to stamp out this way of Jesus cult. That's what he thought the early Christians were, a cult. And both of these points of background, his religious pedigree, his resume, everything that he has accomplished, and the intensity and the zeal with which he lived out his religion, both of these points of background are very instructive for us. Because again, what we're trying to answer here is how did this change happen in Paul's life? And what he himself would say and what we discover from his testimony, his biography, his story is that neither religious pedigree or religious zeal led to the right kind of change in his life. Let me say that again, neither incredible religious pedigree, the best religious resume, the best religious resume you could ever find on LinkedIn, neither that nor the incredible religious zeal, the fervor with which he tried to follow God, neither one of those things brought about the right kind of change in his life. And this is important and instructive for us. I want to drive this point home because I'm convinced, sadly, that we fall into the same exact trap. We do the exact same thing. I know I do this. You see, I've been going to church my entire life. Just as Paul was raised in the Jewish religion, I was raised in the Christian religion. My resume isn't quite as good as the Apostle Paul's, but it's in the same neighborhood. I think I could have written for myself the Christian version of Philippians 3. Here's what it might sound like. I was dedicated in the church before my first birthday, present every Sunday and Wednesday from before I could remember. I tithed from my allowance in elementary school. I prayed before meals and I made my non-Christian friends feel weird for not doing the same. I carried a Bible with me in high school, not in my backpack, but on my other books shining my light for the world to see, and on and on and on, <laughs> right? I went to a Christian college, I got a seminary degree, I'm a pastor, right? I've got a religious resume, a lot like Paul's. And maybe that sounds familiar to you, maybe most of that you're like, actually, that kind of sounds like me. Or maybe I didn't describe you, but you knew that guy in high school, and you avoided him too. <laughs> like, oh, there's the Bible guy, <laughs> heading the other way. <laughs> Now, I won't speak for anyone else's story, but I will say this for mine. Just like the Apostle Paul, I eventually realized that religious pedigree and religious zeal did not bring about the right kind of change in my life. I'm not saying those things are bad, I'm not saying that list is wrong, but that in and of itself did not bring about change in my life. And so, where is change found if not in those things? Well, we're going to find out by reading the verses that I had Marcus skip. So he read verses 1 and 2, and then jumped to 22. And I'm going to read for us verses 3 through 22, and we'll discover the answer to that question. It's a longer passage, it's a longer story, but I promise you, this is not a boring one. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias replied, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now stop there for a second because that is strange, right? Like, why do we know that? Why is it straight street? Why is it the house of Judas? What's happening here? And and likely, the reason that Luke includes this detail is because when he was writing this, Judas was still alive and still living on straight street. I mean, that's not true today, but what Luke is doing, he's including this detail because he's saying, if you don't believe this happened, and come on, let's go, if you don't believe this happened, a lot of you aren't, go to Straight Street, (laughs) knock on Judas' door, and say, hey, I read this thing from this guy, Luke. Did it really happen like this, or is he just blowing smoke? I mean, that's why this is included. Isn't that incredible? Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, are you sure? (laughs) That's Paul's paraphrase. I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. and immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight then Saul rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened for some days Saul was in the was with the disciples at the Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of god And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Saul's story of change and transformation is so unbelievable that it was more likely that they had sent the wrong guy. This has got to be a case of mistaken identity. That's how unbelievable a change this is. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The answer to our driving question of how does change happen is right on the face of this story. It's not hidden whatsoever. And thanks be to God that it's not because we need to hear this answer. How does change happen? Well, according to Acts 9, According to Paul's story, change happens only through encountering Jesus. Change happens through encountering Jesus. It comes when we encounter Jesus. Now, this is not a new or a revolutionary idea, but it is an incredibly foundational idea. This idea that change comes through our encounters with Jesus sits at the very base of what was Paul's change and transformation, It's simple, yes, but it's powerful. And now I want to address something that I hear often from Christians related to this story in Acts 9. Namely, that the apostles' story isn't their story. That's not my story. It goes something like this. No, you see, my testimony is boring. I didn't have a turnaround like Paul. I never had my Damascus Road experience. I just grew up in the church, and I've sort of always believed Not only do I hear statements like this from other Christians, at one point in my life, I believed that this was true of me. I would have said, no, you don't want me to share my story, my testimony. Mine's boring. Find somebody else. But I now think that I was misguided in that thinking because here's what I know to be true. Here's what's true about the Christian faith. It's not about making good people a little bit better. It's it's not even, this is what we often think, it's not even about making bad people good. It's about taking people who are dead and making them alive. That is what the Christian faith is all about. The fact that Jesus defeated death and came back to life, resurrecting, is what we build everything else upon. The resurrection of Jesus is what all of this is about. The empty tomb is what we base all of our hopes on. But as Bill shared last week, it's not just Jesus that has a tomb. You and I, we have tombs too. We have graves. We are dead. Pre Jesus, every single one of us is not just a bad person or a not good enough person. No, pre Jesus, every single one of us is a dead person. We are spiritually dead because of our rebellion against the God of the universe, who He Himself is the author of life. He is life. And so when we rebel and disconnect ourselves from him, we find ourselves spiritually dead, unable to resurrect ourselves. So we can't save ourselves. We can't just sort of sit up from being dead and come back to life. The only way that that happens is through a true encounter with Jesus. A true encounter with Jesus just like what the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus. And now, listen, spoiler alert, my encounter with Jesus, your encounter with Jesus is not going to look exactly what what it looked like for the Apostle Paul's. It's going to be different. But a true encounter with Jesus is a true encounter with Jesus all the same. And when that happens in your life, when that happened in my life, I went from being a dead person to living. From death to life through Jesus. That's Paul's story both the apostle and both this guy right here. And if you're a Christian, that's your story too. And what is a more unbelievable change? What is a more unbelievable story than being dead and then no longer being dead? Now, a big question in my mind at this point, and maybe in yours too, and maybe you don't buy that, maybe it's too big of an if for you. I don't know if I believe this or if it's true But but grant me, it's like okay. If I'll grant you your premise, if Christians, if what that means is you move from death to life, it's like okay, that is a big change. You got a dead person and now a not dead person. That's a big change. The question in my mind, and maybe in yours too, is what does that change look like? When Sunday ends and Monday begins, how can I recognize change? How do I know if change is happening, or more importantly, how do I know if it isn't happening? Well, with our remaining time, I want to draw out two characteristics of change that we see in Paul's story. And the hope is that these will help us begin to recognize and move towards the real change in our own lives that happens when we encounter Jesus. So two characteristics of change from the Apostle Paul's life. First, when you encounter Jesus, you change over time. When you encounter Jesus, you change over time. Now, drawing this point From the Apostle Paul's story might seem sort of strange because Paul's story seems like it's a lot of instantaneous change. It's immediate. And in fact, verse 20 of Acts 9 does say that Paul immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. It's like, well, that doesn't seem like it's changed over time, so what's happening here? Well, the first thing that we we ought not miss is that when a person becomes a Christian, there should be some immediate changes, some changes that don't take time to happen, right? I mean, that person that has recently become a Christian was a dead person and now is living on the other side of Jesus. So some one or two things are gonna be different, probably. One such thing, which was what was true for Paul, is that what he believed about Jesus was different. Pre-Jesus, he, did, he thought Jesus was a fraud. He did, he did, I mean, in no way did he think that Jesus was the son of God as Jesus claimed that he was, but then he met Jesus. He encountered Jesus. And did you catch how he responded to Jesus before even really knowing who he was, right? Jesus bursts through, light shone all around him. Paul falls, and what does he say? He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Not just who are you, bright light. Who are you, voice that's speaking to me. Who are you, Lord? So what... What Paul believed about Jesus changed on the spot, and he began proclaiming his changed belief right away. So some things ought to be immediately different, but we often miss this. So much of Paul's change happened over time, and we actually see this in the text, verses 23 through 25, when many days had passed after what happened with Ananias and Paul and the scales fall from his eyes and he's baptized. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And the key is the beginning of this, right? When many days had passed. Now Luke doesn't tell us exactly how many days, but Paul himself Later, in the letter to the Galatians, he says that the time from when he had the Damascus Road experience to then when he went to Jerusalem was three years. Three years. A lot can happen in three years. Bevan's third birthday is on Wednesday. Let me tell you, a lot can happen in three years, right? Change over time. And what's more, Paul goes to Jerusalem, Luke records uh, this story at the end of our passage today, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and then there's another plot against his life with don't, don't miss the irony, right? The killer is almost killed twice. The killer of the ones who followed Jesus is almost killed himself for following Jesus twice. So, A plot against his life happens again in Jerusalem and he has to leave again and the disciples send him home to Tarsus. Do you know how long he's in Tarsus? 14 years. Three years of formation and change followed by 14 more years of formation and change. I think we get into this idea that Paul was fully changed, fully transformed when he had what happened to him on the Damascus Road, when that went down, and then the next week he left on his missionary journeys to plant churches. The next week, he wrote Romans. The next week, he wrote First and Second Corinthians. That's not how it happened. Change happens over time. Now, we can't use this as an excuse to not get started, right? We could wrongly think, well, hey, if change happens over time, that's good for me. I don't have to start this or stop that until tomorrow or the next day or the next month or the next year. But that's not really the point, is it? Yes, change happens over time. That should provide some comfort to us. We don't have to change everything. We don't have to become like Jesus fully tomorrow. But the point is to be patient and persistent as we partner with God as he works in and through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what what happened in Paul's life and that's what ought to be happening in ours. Patient but persistent. Maybe you remember the quote from Bill Gates, most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. I know I do that, and in fact, I do it with shorter chunks of time. I way overestimate what I can do in a month. I'm going to change everything in 30 days, but I underestimate what I could accomplish in a year. And so then when after 30 days I didn't accomplish that massive change, what do I do? I sit down on the track just like my son, Bevan. I quit running the race of change altogether because I overestimated what I thought I could do in 30 days and underestimated what I could do in a year. Listen, if change happens over time for the Apostle Paul, who wrote 12 or 13 letters of the New Testament Bible, how much more do you think change will happen over time for me, average Paul? (laughs) Right? So here's the question for us this morning. What is one change you want to make in the next year to become more like Jesus? What is one change, not every change, that you need to make in the next year, not month, to become more like Jesus? Last time I preached, I shared about my struggle with living healthy related to food and exercise. I want to change a lot. That's my one change if I had to boil it down. That's my one change. What's yours? What's yours? Maybe you've never had a regular routine of meeting with God through Bible reading and prayer. Is this the year to make that change? Maybe you know you're not a generous person. You you don't give yourself away. The way of Jesus is the generous life. Do you need to make that change this year? Maybe at work or at home you're you're just a jerk unkind, mean, annoyed, exasperated. The way of Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Maybe your one change this year is to ask God to help you grow that fruit in your life as you journey with the Holy Spirit. What is one change you need to make in the next year to become more like Jesus? So when you encounter Jesus, you change over time. But secondly and finally, you also change with the family. You change with the family. Now maybe you caught this when we were reading through the text. It's this incredible point that boils down to one word. God sends Ananias to Straight Street to the house of Judas to meet with Saul. And and Ananias responds. He obeys. He gets up. He goes. He enters the home. And when he Goes to introduce himself when he goes to greet Saul, what does he say? Brother. Brother Saul. Now, don't miss that. Think about what Saul was on his way to Damascus to do to Ananias and his friends arrest them, imprison them, beat them, maybe even kill them. I don't think I would call that person brother if I was Ananias, but Ananias does. And he reminds us that you change with the family. You change with the family. When you encounter Jesus, you don't just get God. You do. You get God through Jesus, but you also get a family. God is our Father, and every other Christian is your brother or your sister. Did you catch that? Every other Christian is your brother or your sister. Let the weight of that sink in on you for a moment. Consider that transfer, how incredible that is, because pre Jesus, we are God's enemies. We're engaged in a war against Him on the battlefield. But then He sent Jesus to save us, to transfer us, so that instead of enemies, we become children. Instead of enemies, we become a son, a daughter. God made a way through Jesus from us to move from the battlefield to the living room. But don't miss this too. It's not just you and God sitting in that living room. You've got a whole lot of brothers and sisters that are in there with you too. We are a family. Jesus is our perfect and our eldest brother and God is our father. We're a family. My immediate family visited us this past weekend for Easter. It was an amazing visit. And significantly, it wasn't just my mom and dad who came down to see us and our our boys. No, my sister came down too. And do you know what we did far too late into the night? We sat, all of us, father, mother, brother, sister, in our living room, talking, laughing, growing, changing. So here's the question, are you acting like a sibling? Are you acting like a sibling? Because our brothers and sisters in Christ are integral to our change. We can't do it without them. Saul couldn't change without Ananias. Later, when he shows up in Jerusalem, the the, the disciples don't want to let him in. Do you know how he gets in? Another brother, Barnabas. Barnabas is like, this guy's legit. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are integral to our change. We don't become more like Jesus without our brothers and sisters in Christ, so are you acting like a sibling? Are you prioritizing your siblings? Are you sharing, helping, listening, gathering, forgiving, loving, growing? Are you sitting up far too late in the living room with them, catching up, laughing, crying? Or are you the estranged brother, the sister who moved away who you never see anymore? If you're not acting like a sibling, why not? Now maybe it's because there's a bunch of siblings here that are kind of messy. And and maybe it's because there's a bunch of brothers and sisters that have hurt you. Yes, this family is messy. Yes, this family is imperfect. Yes, this family has hurt you and will hurt you again. In those ways, guess what? We are just like every other single family. Isn't that true? But the best families that I know move towards the mess, towards the brokenness, towards the hurt, the pain, the frustration, and the anger. Why do they do this? Why do they move towards that? Well, it's because they know that their love for one another is greater and stronger than what pulls them apart. And if that's true for earthly families, how much more true ought it be for God's family? Because here's the thing, in God's family, It's not our love that we have at our disposal. My love is, quite frankly, terrible. My love fails. My love falls short. Maybe your love does too. But in God's family, it's not our love that we're working with. It's God's love. If God's family were up to my love, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But we're not. We've got God's love at our disposal, God's love, which the Jesus Storybook Bible calls a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That love is present in this family. That love ought to be present among us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, whether we live by that love or not is another question, isn't it? But it's a love so wonderful and so powerful that anything is possible, power of God's love is a marvel to behold. It's powerful enough to bring about unbelievable change in the most unlikely people. God's love is powerful enough to take dead people and make them live again. God's love is powerful enough to turn enemies into family. It's powerful enough to start a global movement from the life of a man, Jesus, who was born in a feeding trough and who was killed on a cross. God's love is powerful enough to raise that man, Jesus, from the grave and set his followers on fire with the Holy Spirit. And God's love is powerful enough to burst through the sky and transfer the Apostle Paul from the road of destruction that he was on to the road of life. And stay with me. One more. Don't miss it. Friends, God's love is powerful enough to do all of this in your life too. Now, today save you, change you, bring you back to life, get you out of your grave, cause you to surrender in your war against God, make you family, bring you into the living room, give you brothers and sisters. God's love is powerful enough to do all of that in your life. He stands at the ready to do it. Won't you let him? Now, there's a lot more that could be said about Paul's story in Acts 9. We definitely haven't covered all of it. But more than anything in this story, I'm impacted by the overwhelming display of the power of God's love. This story, perhaps more than any other, reminds us that no one is too far gone. No one is unchangeable. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can become family. Anyone can be made a brother. Anyone can be a sister. And that truth of the power of God's love gives me great hope, both for myself, because I need to change, but it also gives me hope for this messy but beautiful and wonderful thing that we call the family of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Love is a squishy word, it's a junk drawer word. We we use it a lot, probably too much. What do we mean by it? God, your love is Jesus on the cross, the greatest of all sacrifices. Thank you for that love. Thank you that Jesus lived and died and then defeated death so that we might have a way back to you and so that we might have a way to get a bunch of brothers and sisters. Help us to love those brothers and sisters well. It's hard. We often don't know how to do it. We stumble forward. Give us strength to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit because we know, as Jesus said, we, we will be known by your love. People will, sh- ought to look at the church, ought to look at this family and go, how do I get to be a part of that? Because they have a love that is different. So help that to be true. In this church, in this campus, in these community groups, I pray, Father, for these individuals and pray uh, for our morning together. Amen.